All right, well, I gave you some time to turn to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Let's read together. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word to provide revelation, to provide guidance, even to provide some inspiration for our lives that we might live for you, that we might live lives according to your will, for your glory, As we look to your word today, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us from this particular passage in your holy scriptures today. God, speak through me. Holy Spirit, do your work in this room and be glorified here today. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to speak today about the contagious gospel. We looked last week, and if you weren't here last week, it might be helpful to go back and to, to listen to that sermon. Uh, but if you, if you were here last week, you remember we, we, we set up this sermon series by looking at how the church in Thessalonica began. This is a letter, First and Second Thessalonians are letters written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in a city called Thessalonica. And that's a city that that Paul and some of his uh, colleagues in ministry had gone into and they had preached the gospel and they had established this church. And fortunately, the Holy Spirit did that quite quickly because it wasn't long before they had to flee from Thessalonica because all of the people there were getting upset with Paul and and his other ministers for coming and preaching Jesus. The particular point of of, uh, of, of anger and disagreement was that they were preaching that Jesus was a king and that Jesus should have a place of priority in our lives. This was in direct conflict with what the Roman Empire required of everyone within the empire to believe that, that Caesar was your king and that he and he alone should have that primary place of authority in your life. And so a great persecution breaks out against Paul and against these newly established believers, this brand new church, and he has to flee. 
And he, he doesn't go too far, and he finds new places to preach the gospel. This was the pattern of Paul's ministry. He'd often leave one city because of persecution, only to go and, and, and plant a church in another city, uh, where usually he'd experience persecution, and then he'd go to the next church. But this is what Paul did. But he's not too far away. Macedonia, if you remember on our map, is a province of the Roman Empire. It's a state. Right below Macedonia is Achaia. And that's, that's where Paul is presumably writing these letters from. And we believe that he wrote these letters within a year of leaving Thessalonica. And so these memories are kind of fresh in his mind. But he has a concern. His concern is, what happened to these brand new believers after I left? As a, as a pastor, well, even just as a Christian, honestly, as a Christian, I know the vulnerability of new believers. And I know that there's, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when a, when a seed germinates, it's at its most fragile point that that plant will ever be. And it's the same thing when, when new people come to Christ and respond to the gospel, there's a lot of different things that might happen in those early stages that get them off track, perhaps permanently. And that's Paul's concern for the Thessalonian believers. Have they had a proper response to the gospel? And is the fruit of that proper response coming forward? Are they still living according to the gospel? And so he sends one of his co-workers to see them and to check in on them. And that establishes a correspondence between he and the Thessalonians that we now have as part of our New Testament today. What he finds is that they have indeed held to the gospel. What he finds is that, that these new believers are standing firm in the faith. And so what, we look, what we're looking at today, verses 2 through 10, is, is a thanksgiving. This is common in Paul's letters. It was common in letters of the time. There's a very discernible structure to these letters. There's this greeting. That would be verse 1. And then 2 through 10, we have this thanksgiving. He writes the things that he's thankful for before he goes on to give them some further instruction in the Lord. In this thanksgiving we see that Paul has become assured of their proper response to the gospel. How do we know this? How does he know they have properly responded to the gospel? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about five things that indicate a proper response to the gospel. You'll see them on the handout. Let's look at the first one together. The first one says this, a proper response to the gospel results in fruitful living. A proper response to the gospel results in fruitful living. If we look back at verses, verses 2 and 3, this is what we see. Paul says, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it look like for someone to have properly responded to the gospel of Jesus? Paul gives some indications here. 
A proper response to the gospel, which will result in fruitful living, looks like this. It looks like work produced by faith, labor motivated by love, and endurance inspired by hope. Now, some of that might sound familiar. Paul speaks of these three virtues, faith, hope, and love. The same three virtues that he often refers to in some of his other letters, most notably 1 Corinthians in chapter 13, when he says these three remain. The order is a little bit different there. He says faith, hope, and love. But here we see those same three virtues, faith, love, and hope. A proper response to the gospel will produce in you faith, It will produce in you love, love for other believers, love for non-believers, and will produce in you a hope, the anticipation, the confidence of better things to come. He says specifically here that they have work that is produced by faith. What does it mean that work is produced by faith? It gets a little bit tricky here because Paul uses two words that that were different words in Greek, but are very similar words translated into very similar words in English. He speaks of their work produced by faith and their labor motivated by love. It's, it's difficult. I don't want to split hairs too much here, but he does mention them as two separate things. And it appears as though what he means by work, which is produced by faith, he's talking about good deeds, good deeds. Paul sometimes is, is, let's say, misjudged for his view on works, his view on good deeds. Because Paul is the apostle of faith. Justification by faith comes predominantly from Paul's letters that we are saved not by good deeds, that we are saved by by faith in, in Jesus Christ alone. But that doesn't mean Paul is against good works and good deeds. He is very much pro good deeds. He says that our faith should be producing these types of good deeds. Work Work that is done in service to others. That comes from faith. What does faith have to do with work? Why would Paul, why would Paul unite those two things together here? Why would, it be, why would it be that work or good deeds are produced by faith? Well, the, the, this really gets to the heart of the gospel, which which teaches us that we, we can do good deeds not as a way to attempt to earn favor from God. That's the basis of so much religious practice and religious teaching, not just today, but all throughout human history. People, people were always motivated to do good deeds, hoping that they could earn God's favor, hoping that somehow they, they could win his approval. But the gospel reverses that. The gospel says that we don't do good deeds in order to earn God's favor. Otherwise, those good deeds would not be produced by faith, but faith would be produced by good deeds. The good deeds that we do, we do because we believe that Jesus has made us 
acceptable before God. The good deeds that we do, we do because Jesus has done everything that is necessary for our salvation. That's work produced by faith. That's very different than faith produced by works. Faith produced by works manifests itself when you say to someone who's lived a somewhat religious life, you say, say to them, do you believe that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And they say, yeah, I believe I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Well, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, I've always tried to do good deeds. I've always tried to do the right thing. I've all, uh, you know, and, and they, they made list specific deeds. That is, that is backwards. That is the opposite of the gospel. You're not going to go to heaven because you tried to do good deeds. The Bible is explicitly clear that we could never do enough good deeds to earn our way into heaven. In fact, that, that would belittle the reality of heaven. That would mean that heaven is, if heaven is something I can earn, how good is it? It's like, it's like a country club that we can all afford to get into. How good is it? <laughs> if you see me at a country club, it's probably not that great of a place. <laughs> if heaven can, if, if eternal, eternal life in God's presence can be earned by a handful of good deeds, that doesn't sound like heaven. That doesn't sound like eternal glory. And so the gospel reverses this. In the, in the message of the gospel, faith comes first. Faith that Jesus has done what is required for us to have eternal life. And because of that, we're now free to do good deeds. We're now free to work, as Paul says here. We're now free to live lives of of meaningful activity towards other people. One of the evidences of a proper response to the gospel here is that their work produced, their work was produced by faith. Paul goes on to say, your labor motivated by love. Here's, here's the distinction. Labor, if, if work is, is representative of, let's say, good deeds, tasks that you can do labor is ongoing work labor is an ongoing commitment to to work for the lord not just isolated deeds but it's an, it's an ongoing attitude of i'm in this to build the kingdom and that is motivated by love their labor, their ongoing work for the Lord is motivated by their love. Love for Jesus, no doubt. Because Jesus loves me, I should love others. That's, that, that, that should be self-evident. But their love for other believers, the unity that we have with one another in Christ is the foundation of our love. And, and that love should motivate ongoing labor that we don't neglect the needs of the body that we take care of and love one another, but also labor that is motiva motivated by love for the lost. I serve because I care about those who don't yet know Christ. 
I serve because I'm motivated by my love for people who are apart from Christ, who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. We often, well, we try to often talk about the 150,000 people that live within just 20 minutes of where we're at right now, most of whom don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That our love for them should motivate us. Our love for them should, should motivate us to, to be involved in building his church so that more and more people can hear the gospel. Our love for them should motivate us to go, to go to them and to share the gospel with, to find creative ways to be involved in our community, to find creative ways to communicate the message of the gospel to the people around us. That's what love does. Love motivates ongoing labor. And then he says, the third thing he mentions, your endurance inspired by hope. Your endurance inspired by hope. Enduring in what? Well, there's a number of things that we need to endure in. One, we need to endure in, in good deeds and labor. That's something that we're going to have to keep up for the long term. But enduring also in our commitment to the gospel, our commitment to our faith in Jesus Christ, which is inspired by hope. Hope is the confidence of a, of a preferred future in Jesus Christ. Hope is the confidence that we have a risen and living Savior, as I said earlier, and that he has brought us into his family, that he has given us the gift of eternal life, which has already begun, but one day will get significantly better as we are transformed from life on earth to our eternal life in his presence. Hope in Jesus Christ. Those three things, that's what fruitful living looks like. Fruitful living isn't, isn't, Fruitful living is more than, let me say, it's more than just going to church. Fruitful living is more than, you know, occasionally posting something, something Christian, Christian-ness on your, on your social media timeline. Faithful living is more than occasionally abstaining from a sinful behavior. Faithful, fa- fa- fruitful living, excuse me, fruitful living is, is, the manifest by the virtues of faith, love, and hope. It is work produced by faith. It is labor motivated by love. It is endurance inspired by hope. That's fruitful living. How do you know if you have properly responded to the gospel? Well, your life will manifest these three things. If you've only manifested maybe one of these, if you, can, if you can say, well, you know, I'm enduring. I have hope of a future. But you haven't been doing work. If you haven't been laboring for the Lord, that's not a proper response to the gospel. A proper response to the gospel results in fruitful living. Next thing you see on the handout, a proper response to the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit. Proper response to the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit. 
One thing Paul knows good and well about the gospel is that when the gospel comes to a new town like Thessalonica, I mean, think about this. Paul goes, he's constantly going, he's a frontier missionary. He is literally like the first one to come and preach the gospel in many of these places. And so he shows up, he shows up in a city Often he goes to the synagogue if there's a Jewish synagogue because he's, he's got, he's got a, a reputation among the Jews. He's earned his stripes among the Jews. He is, as he would say at one point, a Jew of, of Jews. He, 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 has, he has earned the right to speak to them. And so he goes into these synagogues and he preaches the gospel. But he doesn't preach the gospel as a brand new religion. He preaches the gospel as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of a Messiah. As the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of a Savior. He says, look, what we've been studying in the scriptures, what, what, what God has been promising for hundreds of years, has come to pass. Jesus of Nazareth is that man. So he would go and he would preach the gospel and some would respond by believing in Jesus Christ. Not all of them, but some would. And in every city that Paul goes into, he has this confidence that the Holy Spirit is going to work, bringing new life, bringing salvation to some of the people in that city. Let's look at verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. The gospel, how does he say the gospel came? In power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. And so he confidently goes in to all of these cities just like, that, like he did in Thessalonica. And he, he shares with them the good news of the gospel. And he, he knows that it's not his words that are going to bring salvation. And he knows that it's not the effort of the people that he's preaching to that is going to bring salvation. He knows that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual activity that only the Holy Spirit can do. And so it is today. A proper response to the gospel is always the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something man-made. It's not something that that you can do apart from his help. In fact, the, the Bible says that spiritually speaking, we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. What kind of response can you expect to get from dead people when you preach the gospel? None. Dead people can't respond to the gospel. If you have responded to the gospel, it is not by your own will. It is not by your own effort. It is not because, you know, God always knew you really were special. Sorry. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of God. Why is that helpful to know? It may not sound helpful yet. The reason that is helpful to know is because your confidence 
in the gospel and what it has done in your life. You are, as Paul, to use the word Paul uses here, your assurance, your power to, the, your, your, the likelihood of, of you staying with the gospel comes from the same place, the Holy Spirit. Just as it is not a work that you have begun, it is not a work that you will complete. It is of the Holy Spirit. He has done and he will continue to do this work in you. That's why that's important to know. That doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. That doesn't mean that we don't engage our will. That doesn't mean that we don't willfully respond to what the Holy Spirit has done in us. But we know that our confidence and our assurance is in God himself. It's in his faithfulness. We are confident that we will endure because he who promised is faithful. A proper response to the gospel is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now let me get to the next two. I said there's five, that's two. Uh, That's two. Three and four kind of go together. Not kind of, they really go together. Number three is this. A proper response to the gospel results in imitating godly role models. A proper response to the gospel results in imitating godly role models. We're going to look at verses, I'm going to look at the second half of verse 5, and then we're going to look at verse 6 as well. Did I read? Yes, I did read the first part of verse 5. Okay. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. I'm like, what's going on in here? That's the second time that, that, happened, that happened to me as I was preparing this morning, too. I was like looking at the wrong chapter. I was like, that doesn't sound right. I'm eager to get to chapter 2. But here we are in chapter 1, the second part of verse 5. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became in, imitators of us and of the Lord, when in spite of s- severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul's ministry is his willingness to set himself forth as an example to be followed. That takes incredible courage. It's not self-confidence that causes him to do that. Though he may have been self-confident. I don't know that he wasn't. But it's not self-confidence. It's, it's confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit in him. We need more leaders, especially in the church, who are willing to set themselves forward as an example and say, if you imitate me, you will be more like Christ. That's a scary place. How many of you would be willing to do that? That's a scary thing to do. And we don't need leaders who are perfect, okay? Um, If if you're looking for leaders that are perfect, you won't find them here. But what we do need is leaders who are willing to say, you know what, I'm going to live my life in such a way that if others follow me, they will be more like Christ. I'm going to set myself forth as an example. I'm going to do my best with the help of the Holy Spirit to be a life worth imitating. We need those. Paul says, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through this letter. How did he live among them 
for their benefit. And he says, you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Look at the components here. They have this example of godly role models in Paul and his, his co-ministers, and they become imitators of, of Paul, not just, not just Paul, but and of the Lord. All godly role models need to be held up next to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, right? We don't, we don't set the bar at the best role model that we have around us. We set the bar at Jesus and we say, as, as much as this person reflects Jesus, I will imitate them. He says, you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord. When? How did they imitate Paul? They imitated Paul in, in, in spite of persecution. They welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. One of the things we looked at last week that I said sort of towards the end was what, you know, I was, I was just asking the question, what motivated the Thessalonian believers to live a life in response to the gospel when that meant persecution? Remember the story of Jason? Where they went and they drug him out of his house and they demanded that he give up Paul and, and then they fined him and basically, you know, extorted money out of him. You remember that, that persecution? And, and do you remember the, the persecution that was so severe that it actually had to sneak Paul out of the city at night? What motivated them to live in response to the gospel in the face of that kind of persecution? Like if you got excited about something, if you got excited about... Um, I'm not going to use that example. But if you got excited about, I, I, now I'm blanking on other examples to use. Um, but, but, but let's say, you know, somebody close to you got involved in some sort of club. And they're like, man, it's a really great club. We do this, this, and this. It's great people. It's really, really good people to be around. Why don't you come? And, and you, you go and you get excited and you're like, yeah, this is a great club. I want to be a part of this. And you, you go through the process to join and, and you're really excited about it. Then all of a sudden, everybody that wasn't a part of that club started treating you really poorly. And they started really making your life miserable. You have a decision to make at that point. You have to say, is my membership in this club worth the suffering that I'm experiencing? Or would it be easier if I just gave up my membership in this club, right? And the, how you answer that question is going to be determined by how much you value the, the tenets of belief or the experience of being a part of that club. That's essentially uh, uh, what's happening with these Thessalonian believers and believers in many other cities is they've accepted a message and now they've, they're becoming severely persecuted for their acceptance of that message, their admittance into that club, if you will. And they have to decide, is my membership in this club worth all of this suffering? And the, the answer that... I sort of hinted at last week when I said that everyone in Thessalonica had found something worth living for, but the believers in Christ had found something worth dying for. The answer 
to that for Christians is that we have something that is so valuable in Jesus, in, in the gift of eternal life. We have something that's so valuable that it's literally worth losing everything for. It's literally worth dying for. So he says, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. What would make you welcome a message with joy, knowing that it's going to cost you everything else in your life? Well, it would be a proper understanding of what you have embraced is more valuable than everything else you've ever had. And that's the gospel. When you see the gospel as it truly is, you realize that it's more valuable than everything you have ever had. It's more valuable than your job. It's more valuable than your dream home. It's more valuable than your friendships and your relationships with other people. It's more, more valuable than your health. It's more valuable than your, your savings. It's more valuable than the hopes and dreams that you had for your life and for your family. It's more valuable than that. And until you see it as such, you have not properly seen the gospel but the Thessalonians saw it they saw the gospel as this valuable so much so that even though they were being severely persecuted they still welcomed this message with joy they still were glad for the message having come to them because they knew its worth they knew its value so a proper response to the gospel results in imitating godly role models. The next one, the one that goes along with that, is that a proper response to the gospel results in an example for others to follow. So when you respond to the gospel, you, you, you may begin to imitate those who are worth imitating in the gospel. But also, your response becomes an example for others to follow. Verse 7 says, As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. As Paul travels throughout these two states, Macedonia and Achaia, and as he preaches the gospel, one of the things that keeps coming up is the response and the faith of the Thessalonian believers. They have become an example. People have heard that as soon as they accepted the gospel, persecution broke out. People have heard that they stayed faithful in spite of that persecution, that they began to imitate those godly role models, and that they are bearing fruit, that, that their, their response to the gospel has resulted in this fruitful living. People are, are catching wind of this, and, and the story is, is spreading faster than Paul. He's showing up in cities and hearing, people are telling him, did you hear about the Thessalonian believers? Their proper response to the gospel results in an example for others to follow. He says, we don't need to say anything. 
For they themselves, meaning the people in these other cities, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. That's the beauty of when, when the Holy Spirit is doing a work, when the Holy Spirit is causing a proper response to the gospel in a group of people, like, like I believe he is doing here at Redemption Church, word about that spreads. And that doesn't mean everybody's excited about what they hear, but word about that spreads and people say, did, did, people start to talk. Did you hear about them over there? Did you hear what they're doing? Yeah, yeah, I did hear something about that. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. When you respond properly to the gospel, you not only begin to imitate those godly role models, but you become an example for others to follow. I remember the, the church that I served at for 16 years before we came here and, and planted Redemption Church actually was a church that was planted in my hometown, uh, Catanning, um, but I was essentially uh, away at college when that church had really started to take off and I had never attended or anything. My, the, my first interaction with that church was I started to hear about people from my town who were responding to the gospel. And I was like, man, wow, what's going on here? What's happening here? The word about their response to the gospel was spreading. And there was, there was I remember one guy, one guy in particular, um, he became a really close friend and, and today is, is still a good friend of mine. Uh, we went to high school together. We weren't friends in high school, um, but you know we both had kind of gone. We had both kind of gone down a bad path, let's say. Um, his much worse than mine, and I got off of mine much sooner. But I remember being in Bible college, and somebody was like, "Did you hear so and so became a Christian?" I was like, "What?" That's crazy. And then I reached out to him. We started talking. I was like, dang. He started telling me what God was doing. And I just kept hearing these testimonies of what God was doing, of how the Holy Spirit was causing people to respond to the gospel. A proper response to the gospel results in an example for others to follow. Let me give you one more, and then we'll be done. Those were all, those first four, proper response to the gospel results in fruitful living. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It results in imitating godly role models, and it results in an example for others to follow. Those are all sort of what it will look like. But what is a proper response to the gospel? Like, what does it look like personally? How, if, if, if you were to ask me, what do you mean by a proper response to the gospel? I think I would point you to what Paul says here in verse 10. A proper response to the gospel means turning from an empty, godless life to follow Jesus. A proper response to the gospel means turning from an empty, godless life to follow Jesus. Jesus. What happened in Thessalonica and what happened in many other cities in the first century and what has been happening for the last 2,000 years and what's happening here today in Lower Borough in western Pennsylvania is that people are hearing the gospel and 
And the Holy Spirit is doing the work that only he can do to bring those who are hearing the gospel to life. And when they come to their senses and realize what this gospel means for them, it means that they are now turning from an empty, godless life. And by empty, godless life, I, I don't mean that, I, I, I don't mean a totally um, ungodly life. I literally mean a godless life. You're living a life that did not include a personal saving relationship with God. You're turning from that emptiness, that emptiness that defines the overwhelming majority of people who live on the earth today who are living for anything but a relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn from that and turn to this idea of following Jesus, of walking with him, of living a fruitful life. One that is motivated by faith, love, and hope. One that results in work, in labor, and endurance. One that, that begins to respond to and imitate the godly role models that are in our lives. And one that ultimately becomes an example for others to follow. A proper response to the gospel means turning from whatever it was that you were living for before. Before you heard the gospel, before the Holy Spirit brought you to life, and it's turning from that to follow Jesus. He, said, he says, let me, read, let me read verse 9 so you understand what he's saying here. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. Remember, these are what Paul's hearing as he travels around. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven... That phrase is actually, to, to wait for his son from heaven is actually going to cause Paul a little bit of grief and a little bit of trouble. And we won't, we'll talk really about that till we get to 2 Thessalonians because some people misunderstood what he meant to wait for his son from heaven. But essentially that's what we're to do. We're to live lives that are in anticipation of Jesus' coming back to earth. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. A proper response to the gospel is not only turning from an empty way of life, but it's, it's turning from an eternity of separation from God, described here by Paul as the coming wrath. It's going from death to life. It's putting your faith in the only one who could save you. Jesus Christ, who was crucified on the cross on your behalf so that you could receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. 